I love Sunday nights. Does anybody miss the old Sunday night services? Where it's just relaxed. It's very different than Sunday. It's just got a different feeling. Everybody that's there wants to be there. Nobody's getting their duty out of the way. Just the whole thing seems more relaxed. Um, Could we just start with a little chorus? Um, Boy, oh boy, this is going to sound loud. Let me just go like this. Open my eyes, Lord. I want to see Jesus to reach out and touch him and say that I love him. Open my ears, Lord, and help me to listen. Open my eyes, Lord. I want to see Jesus. Lord, rest here tonight. As we think, as we talk, as we look into the Word of God together, please, Jesus, have your way among us. Amen. Hey, find a few people to say hi to, and we will, we will get started. This is for the question answer. Okay? All right, guys. I want to uh, just make some resources available to you. Everything in this stack over here is for free. You can just take these. And then I've got three books. One is called When a Jew Rules the World. Uh, The second is called Breaking the Veil of Silence. And the third one is a biography of Harry S. Truman. And these, I put my name in those. You're welcome to borrow them and return them to me. Um, Some of the resources that have helped me prepare tonight. Um, Before we read scripture... I want to read something, and actually we're going to pray again too, but I won't make you stand again. Um, if you get my weekly devotional, you, uh, you've already heard this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it again. It's, this is a modern day, if you will, parable. The year was 1917, and Robert and Lucy were happily married, a happily married couple with a prosperous farm in the South. In that year, they had their first child, a son. They named Israel, because Lucy had been barren like Rebecca of old. 
Israel was their miracle son, an answer to their prayers. Eight years later, to their amazement, they began having additional children, and by 1930, they'd had four more. Israel was now 13 in eighth grade, but times were hard, and he had to drop out of school to help his dad on the farm because all the other laborers had to be let go. He and his father worked together through the Dust Bowl years and managed to hold on to their land when others lost theirs. Israel knew Robert loved his other children and insisted that all of them get more education than he had. As the farm prospered again, Robert wanted Israel to go back to school as well, but he always refused. Even though all this was true, Israel began harboring resentment toward his siblings and began drinking to numb the pain. Robert would often find him picking on his brothers and sisters or bullying them around while drunk. He tried to talk to his firstborn, but a hardness had set in. It all came to a head one day when Robert heard Israel yelling at Lucy, his mom, from outside the house. When Robert came in, he witnessed Israel striking Lucy in the face. Everyone was stunned. The other children had witnessed the fight, but all were afraid of their older brother. Leave, was all Robert said. So Israel packed up his stuff. Before leaving the house, he turned to his mom and dad with rage in his eyes and said, I hate you. Then he was gone. Family gatherings simply didn't include Israel in the following years. The other children all grew up and became successful, but all the news they heard about Israel was bad. How the grown-up children felt about Israel varied. One of them hated Israel for the pain he had caused their parents and purposed never to even bring up his name in front of them. As far as he was concerned, Israel was no longer part of the family. Two of the children didn't hate him. They were just indifferent. Israel had made his choices, they reasoned, and now he had to live them, live with them. A tragic story, but there was nothing they could do about it. But one child, after years of not seeing Israel, went to his father and asked him how he felt about his oldest child. This is what Robert said. He's my firstborn, and I love him. My heart aches that he's away, and for me, the family will never be complete until he's home. Your mother and I have been anonymously supporting him for years, and we pray for him every night. The child was moved by the tears in his father's eyes and by the depth of his grieving heart. So he asked, Dad, what can I do for Israel? Robert answered, Pray for him, please. Be kind to him for my sake. Honor the sacrifices he made which allowed you and your siblings to get an education. Forgive him, love him. And if he asks, let him know that I love him too and only want him 
to come home again. Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 29. I'll just, I'll just go up here. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Okay, if we've ever needed to pray, it's right now. Just to try to get our hearts around what God is saying. Lord, it is very easy for human beings to come to their own conclusions without really asking you what you think about things. And once we get on the wrong track, we can become very stubborn about it and very immovable about it. Father, tonight, just like the the child in the allegory that decided he was going to ask dad, how do you see that? How do you feel about your firstborn? So, dear God, we're asking you tonight how you feel about Israel. Lord, there has been so much written and there's so much stuff around Israel and so much oftentimes passion around things. Lord, we just want to look in your word. We just want to hear what you say. We don't want, we don't want the latest book about Israel. We want what you're saying about Israel. Wash our hearts, wash our minds, Give us peace as we talk about Israel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
point one, why we need to honor Israel. And I want to, I want everybody to know all of these notes will be available online. So you don't have to, you don't have to uh, take voracious notes tonight. They will all be listed online. And if you're, for whatever reason, you don't know how to do that, just email me and I will send you all the notes. Why do we need to honor Israel? First, they are the root that supports us. Listen to the words of Jesus, John 4, 38. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus turns to his apostles. He's, he's speaking to the woman at the well, and, and it's, it's, about the, it's about the harvest. He says, lift up your eyes. The, the harvest, don't say four months, and then the harvest is white right now. And then he says to his disciples, you are reaping what other people labor, labored for. What you have privilege to, somebody else did the hard work. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Israel were the carriers of the promises. They were the carriers of the promise of Messiah. They were the carriers of the promise of a new covenant. And as carriers, they acted out in shadows and types, all of the realities of the new covenant without having any idea of what they really meant. They, they killed animals. They ate foods. They were careful to do this and to do that and to preserve the promises just had God had spoken them. Yet they did it all in the dark. They couldn't see what was coming. They couldn't, they couldn't grasp what was happening. Could you imagine being among the people of God when they went around the wilderness for 40 years. That's your life. How many know that would be a bad life? You're setting up tents and you're doing all these things around the temple and all of these things, or tabernacle, and you're, you're setting it up and you're, you're doing whatever, and it's, and it's all because they're the carriers of the promise. Israel did the hard work for you and I. We live in the day where, uh, you know, wow, we see the fulfillment. We see the reality of Christ and of the new covenant. And they didn't, and they carried it. They carried it for God. But Paul's saying here in Romans 11, how, how could you possibly be conceited and arrogant 
towards the root, towards those that carried this before you, as if you, this wild olive branch, grafted in at the end of time, somehow, that this all began with you. And that somehow God chose you because of how great you are. He's like, how can you be so, so arrogant? How can you be so conceited? You stand by your faith. They receive severity because of unbelief. But God is able to bring them back in. And you need to check your attitude towards the root. Our debt as Gentiles, anybody that's not a Jew in Scripture is a Gentile. Our debt as Gentiles to Israel is even greater than what all of the Old Testament prophets and and all those that did. All of the apostles were Jewish. They all gave their lives for this. Now, we can say, well, they gave their lives for, for Jesus. And they certainly did. Does that mean it's any less that they gave them for us too? To preserve the gospel? To preserve the truth? They courageously died for us. It just, it's so mature and beautiful and right on Memorial Day. When we recognize the freedoms that we have now came to us at a great price. And it is so right to honor that price that was paid, to remember that price that was paid, to set time aside to remember. It's so easy to forget, isn't it? In our story, Israel had the firstborn had had left school, had worked day and night so that the other kids could get their education. And then he came across problems of his own and ended up getting kicked out of the house. And, and, but, but none of that lessens the price that he paid so that the other children could be educated. What we have today in Christ... Yes, Jesus paid on the cross for. But you know what? Israel paid a huge price so that we could have the freedoms that we have today. We need to honor Israel. They are the root that supports us. Secondly, even though, why we need to honor Israel, even though they were judged, they are still chosen and loved. Why were they judged? Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 47. When he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children with you. 
and they will not leave you, leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. There is a, a, a kairos, an opportune time where God was inviting Israel, the nation of Israel. Jesus came, it, the, their Messiah came, he was among them. There was a kairos open to them and they didn't recognize it for a, a lot of reasons, pride, religion, all kinds, the same reasons we often miss our kairos today. They missed their kairos. And judgment came on the city of Jerusalem. I want you to notice that Jesus was weeping as he said this. He wept over Jerusalem. He weeps when people miss their kairos. The the fact that Israel would reject Messiah was prophesied all over the Old Testament. That, that, that the stone that the builders rejected was going to be the capstone. In Daniel chapter 9, which is where we get the term Messiah or anointed one, Christ. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come like a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. This is in the context of it's the end of the Babylonian captivity. Daniel is praying, God, Jeremiah said 70 years and we should go free. And he's fasting and he's praying and he's seeking God about, about the, the deliverance of Israel. And Gabriel appears to him and he, he doesn't answer the current deliverance. He gives the bigger picture. He says there are 77s decreed for the people of Israel and for Jerusalem. And after those 77s, all of the prophecies will be fulfilled. And they start with the decree to rebuild the city. It was made by Artaxerxes in 445 BC. He says there's going to be seven sevens in which the city will be rebuilt. It'll be a time of trouble followed by 62 sevens. If you do all of the math, and you've got to change it to lunar years, because we've got solar years now, you do, you do all the math from 445 B.C., which you can find that in the Encyclopedia Britannica, and you take 62 sevens out, you're going to come to 33 A.D. After the 62 sevens, Messiah is going to be cut off. And the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the people of a coming prince. It's not the prince. The prince isn't there yet. A coming prince. But the city is going to be destroyed. And there's going to be a time where Israel has been left desolate until the end. The last seven, we'll talk about it later, has to do with Israel and the, the prince that is coming. And we'll talk about that in a, in a moment. But the fact that after Messiah came, Messiah would come. He would be cut off, and after he was cut off, the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. That, that is 
way BC. We've got an Old Testament that dates to BC. This was not written after the fact. This is in the Jewish Bible. This, that this would happen. Messiah is, should be on the earth, according to the Jewish Bible. Messiah should be on the earth and cut off and that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed as a result. It's all happened. Stunning prophecy, really. Jerusalem is destroyed and the nation is scattered as a judgment for rejecting Christ. Luke 21, 20 through 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, a lot of this language, and this is often with prophetic language, a lot of it is going to be very similar language to this last seven when there's an antichrist and there's an abomination of desolation. But Jesus, Jesus says, this is going to happen in your time. The city is going to be destroyed and Israel is going to be sent into the nations until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And then he goes on in Luke 21 and talks about the end times. It, it's this prophecy, interesting, Eusebius, an early church father said, it was this prophecy is what saved many, many Christians when Jerusalem fell. The Jews said, God will deliver us. And they took a stand and they wouldn't leave. And the Christians all remember this prophecy and said, no, it's, t- it's time to go for the hills. Even though they were judged, they are still, as Paul says in Romans 11, they might be enemies for the gospel from your standpoint, but they are loved of God. Just because God disciplines a son does not mean he stops loving the son or that somehow he's no longer in his heart. If if any parent here has a child away from God, I think you know how God feels about Israel. They are not cut off from the family. They are not, they're no longer in your heart. I'm just going to make a new family around the kids that are serving God. Is that how we do it? No. Our heart's broken. The family's never complete until that lost one comes back and is back in Christ. And so we pray and we ask God and we... Thirdly, those who... Why should we honor Israel? Those who bless Israel will be blessed. And we need God's blessing. Genesis 12, verse 3. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. 
And whoever blesses you will be blessed, and whoever curses you will be cursed. This is where we need to be very careful as Christians. Because a lot, a lot has been said and written around this that simply is not true. Before we, co- we're going to come back to this, but before we do, I'm going to just take it out of this. I'm going to go over to another topic and you'll see why. I'm going to talk just for a moment about tithing. Okay? So here's, here's Malachi 3, 8 through 10. God says, you have, you have robbed God, and because you have robbed... How have, you, how have we robbed God? By, by not bringing your tithes in, and because you have robbed God, you are cursed with a curse. And then he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse... And see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you that will overflow and I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. How do we feel about that? How do we feel about that whole idea? Well, I start with this. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Jesus hung on a tree. He took the curse for us. Under the law, tithes were owed. You had to pay God. And uh, Jesus took that curse. No Christian is cursed because they don't tithe. Jesus took the curse. We don't even pay our tithes in the New Testament. We give our tithes. That's how Abraham did it. He gave his tithes. Now, it also says that all, the answer to all of the promises of God is yes in Christ Jesus. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 1.20. Now, the promises he's talking about are all Old Testament promises. So here's what those who tithe have today. You, you can, if you tithe, you can have the blessing of Malachi 3.10. You don't get, you don't get the curse of 3.8 and 3.9 if you don't. But in Christ Jesus, you can have the blessing of Malachi 3.10 when you tithe. God, you can come into covenant with God for your, with, with your giving. That I'm going to bring the whole tithe into, the, and, and God said he's going to open up the windows of heaven, and he's going to rebuke the devourer for my sake, and it's going to overflow. And so we get the blessing, the full blessing of God on our giving. And we, we don't, once again, we don't pay our tithe, we give our tithe. So here it is with Israel. If you and I want the full blessing of God, let, let, me, let me tell you what I believe about the new covenant. I believe in the new covenant, Jesus has become a curse. He has taken away the sin of the human race. But Paul gives the, the message of reconciliation, which is this message to the world, that God is not holding the sins of the world against them. 
Okay, so in Christ, the curse has happened. The judgment has happened. God's holiness, his wrath has been fulfilled in the cross. The message is, come on. And so here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe God blesses everybody as much as he can. I believe he blesses every church as much as he can. I even believe he blesses non-Christians as much as he can. But I'll tell you what, there's a fountain of blessing that is called fullness. And if you grab a hold of all of the things that God, how God feels about things, you can get a fuller blessing. And one of them is about Israel. I do not believe there's a curse if you don't really care about Israel or you're kind of indifferent for Israel. But I believe there is a blessing for those that honor Israel. I believe those that take the time to ask, those who take the time to study, those who take the time to pray, those who who grab a hold of God's heart and say, I'm going to bless Israel. I believe there is a blessing that comes. And I believe when we, as the church, refuse to bless Israel, or even acknowledge there exists, a lot of the church today doesn't even acknowledge Israel exists, that, that the church has replaced Israel. The church is the new Israel of God. God doesn't even, he rejected Israel, now he's got the church, and he just loves the church, but he forgot. And Paul says, no, that's craziness. There's a partial hardening on Israel, but God hasn't forgotten about Israel. His firstborn is still in his heart, and he has a plan for the firstborn that we're actually supposed to be part of. So here's what happened. The early church fathers got in the wrong thought about Israel and created a tragedy which I believe removed the full blessing of God from the church. People were still in all ages getting saved, but has anybody ever noticed that in Acts, there's like a lot of miracles that are happening and lots of dramatic, powerful things happening. And then you get into church history and it's like they stop. Or they go down and somebody here and somebody there and somebody there. What happened to the church? How did the church lose the full blessing of God? Well, let me, let me read this to you. This is from uh, Breaking the Veil of Silence. Church fathers of the first to the fourth century, Ignatius of Antioch, Barnabas, origin, a different Barnabas than in scripture, origin of Alexandria and Chrysostom, just to name some of the most important ones, slowly be, developed a theology of hatred toward the Jews. This began a long road of suffering that led to pogroms, inquisition, massacres, and destruction of synagogues in the Middle Ages and was to culminate in the Holocaust in modern times. That seems like a, a statement that you might have trouble believing. So I'm just going to read you a few of the quotes from some of the early fathers about Israel. This is just how the church got into the wrong thought about how God felt about Israel. Ambrose, an early father, forbade intercession to be made for the Jews. It was illegal to pray for them. 
Augustine, one of the giants of, uh, of fathers that, that all of the Protestant reformers, um, he believed, of course, in predestination. If you, know, if you know the story, he believes in predestination. Some have been predestined to be saved. Others have been predestined to be lost. And if you are reprobate, you don't have, there is no chance of salvation. He believed the whole Jewish race was reprobate. Jerome says this, if it is expedient to hate any man and to loathe any race, I have a strange dislike for those of the circumcision. For up to the present day, they persecute our Lord Jesus Christ in the synagogues of Satan. Listen to Martin Luther. This is in 1543. And I'm going to only read a little because if I read it all, it would be just so horrible. It would just make you feel defiled. Let me give you my honest advice about the Jews. First, their synagogue should be set on fire. And whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt so that no one may be able to see a cinder or stone of it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity in order that God may see that we are, that God might see that we are Christians. 1560, John Calvin, big reformer. The Jews, rotten and unbending stiff-neckedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Do you guys see that this, these are the seeds of the Holocaust? These are, the, these are Hitler's seeds. This is, this is, it can all be done in the name of God by just quoting church fathers. Do you see why the full blessing of God couldn't be on the church? It's not a matter of the church being cursed. Jesus became a curse for us. He hung in our place. He took that curse. It's a matter of the full blessing of God. And I believe as a church, we'll never experience the full blessing of God without honoring Israel. I believe individually, we, we will never have the full blessing of God without honoring Israel. Point two, what's happening right now in Israel? Okay, we, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff about the blood moons. Blood moons and the significance of the blood moons and what's going on with the blood moons. And, and I'm going to read to you. Um, it's actually in this. Here, it's in this little magazine. The blood moons and the lion's roar. And uh, this is from Pete Scheller. Pete, Pete's dad... Gustav started Operation Exodus, which was bringing Jews back to the promised land. And uh, so uh, Pete, he, he pastors a church here in Madison. It's called Destiny Fellowship. He's just a great, great guy. Um, here's what he said about the, the blood moons. I just thought it was really good. Number one, Jesus himself stated that there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. So the idea that the blood moons may be significant is not without some biblical foundation. Number two, 
Almost no one has claimed to know specifically what these blood moons indicate. Only that they signal something important, most likely in relationship to Israel. Number three, there is a much clearer sign of God's activity that many people are overlooking. And that is the return of the Jewish people to the promised land from all over the earth. So Jesus, Jesus in our passage in Luke said that the Jews are going to be scattered um, to the nations until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Does somebody remember when Jesus cursed the fig tree? Has that ever been confusing to anybody? Why would Jesus curse a fig tree that has no fruit on it? Well, the fig tree represents Israel. In both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Luke 13, it's all about the fig tree and about the ministry of Jesus looking for fruit, trying to get fruit and give it a little longer. And then if it doesn't bear fruit, then cut it down. But do you remember what Jesus said about the end times? He said in Matthew 24, the fig tree is going to bud again. When you see the fig tree budding again, know that the time is near. Jesus said this in Luke 21, 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Okay, the word generation there is the word genia. And every, the NAS, the NIV translations, they put a little asterisk next to generation there and it says in the margin, or race. It can mean generation or it can mean race. It's usually translated as generation. And because of that, everybody has... Well, I shouldn't say everybody. Lots of people have, you know, we're in the last generation. We're, because of Israel being a nation, we're in the last generation. It's just a countdown. And, of course, Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, it was all about the last generation. Guys, in Luke 21, 32, it has to mean race. Because Jesus describes the events of their own time, the destruction of Jerusalem, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And then he describes the second coming. His point is this. This race will not pass away. Everyone's going to think it will pass away because the city is going to be destroyed and they're going to go into the nations and no nation, no race in history has kept its identity in the nations. It always assimilates and becomes, you know, Irish or German or Americans. You lose your identity when you don't have a nation. But the Jews, Jesus said, no, This race will not pass away until everything that has been promised them will be fulfilled. In 1948, Israel became a nation again. We're going to talk about that in a little while of how that came about. Absolutely stunning. And in 1967, 
which actually Jesus doesn't talk about Israel, the whole nation. He talks about Jerusalem. This city will be destroyed and sent into the nation. And, and Jerusalem was not retaken until 1967 in the Six-Day War in a very miraculous war. What is happening now in Israel? God is gathering Israel for his great name. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 23 and 24. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When I prove myself holy, Among you in their sight, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from the lands, and bring you into your own land. I am going to vindicate my own name, my own faithfulness. I have not forgotten my people. I have not forgotten Israel. I am doing this for the sake of my own name, to keep my own promises. I'm going to do this in front of everybody. I'm going to bring Israel back to its land. They are being gathered spiritually dry. Listen to Ezekiel 37, 7 and 8. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, sinews were on them, and flesh grew and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. In Ezekiel 37, God tells about how he's going to gather Israel from the graveyard of the nations. And he's going to decree that they come back together. But they come back together spiritually dry. There's no breath in them. Even though they're back together. All this has happened right in front of us. This is happening in our time. In our day. Israel has been regathered in front of us. God has vindicated his own name. Jesus said this race will not pass away, and it hasn't. He said the fig tree is going to bud again. I'm not done with the fig tree. It's going to bud again. And all of the promises I have made are going to be fulfilled to it. And this is happening in our day. This is the greatest sign of our day. Number point three, the coming revival in Israel. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. In in Jeremiah 31 through 31 through 40, I'm not going to read it all, but God says, I'm, I'm going to, I'm making a new covenant with you. And it's all the verses we use about the new covenant. I'm going to remove your sins. I'm going to make a new agreement with you where I'm going to take out that heart of flesh. I'm going to put my law right on your heart. You're going to want to follow me. And I'm going to bring you to the land. 
I'm going to settle you in the land. See, the new covenant was not written for Gentiles. This is hard for us to grasp. It was given to the Jews. And it included the land. There were spiritual promises. And there were physical promises. Now, the great mystery of the ages. Paul says. Is that we have come into the Gentiles. Have come into the promises before Israel. God did a shift. No one could see it coming. That in, in the Old Testament, the Gentiles were always going to come in, but it was on the heels of Israel. Israel's the head and the Gentiles come later. And Paul says, this is a great mystery, but the Gentiles are in now. God did a switch. And we've come into their spiritual promises. They're going to come into their spiritual promises. They're also, even now, coming into their promises about the land. Even though they're being gathered dry, there is a day that they will, well, Paul says it. He says, in that day, all Israel is going to be saved. I will remove the godliness from Jacob. I'm going to deliver her. There's a, it, he says, it's a mystery, but there's a partial hardening right now. And part of that partial hardening, Colossians 1.27, is that the Gentiles would come in first. There is a tremendous picture of this. In Genesis, where, where Jacob has two brides. The first one is Rachel. Rachel is the one he labors for. Rachel is the one that he loves. Rachel is the one that we're going to get married someday. And that's all anybody knows is I'm going to marry Rachel. I have chosen Rachel. I love Rachel. I will marry Rachel. And then on wedding night... Laban does a switch. And the older one, Leah, by a mystery, gets married first. <laughs> Jacob wakes up in the morning. He's like, hey, hey, <laughs> hey, the wrong, wrong one. Oh, yeah, did I, for, I forgot to tell you, the older always has to be married first. I'll give you the younger two. And after the wedding week, and then... The bride becomes complete. Rachel and Leah. The two becoming one bride. Jew and Gentile. Through the blood of Jesus. So the role, I want to talk about the role that the church will play in bringing Israel into its covenant. What role do we play? First, the first role we play is reconciliation. We need to be honest about the church's past failures and say the words past generations couldn't find. Here are the words. We're sorry. Please forgive us. There's a hostility in many Jewish people towards Christians because of how they've been treated. And it's all true. Christians did treat them that way. The church treated them that way. It wasn't Jesus, but to say, well, you know, that's not really... You know what? Don't make justifications for anything. Just say, that happened. We are so sorry. Tragic. It was never the heart of God that those atrocities happened, especially in the name of Christ. Please 
Forgive us. Reconciliation. Number two, kindness. That's what Operation Exodus is. It's just Christians helping Jews that want to go back to the promised land, go back to the promised land. They've been, they've been operating for many, many years now in Ethiopia and Russia and, and America, all places where Jews want to go home and the Christian church coming alongside to give financial help and oftentimes housing and, and making it possible for Jews to come home. Thirdly, prayer. In 1983 and 1984, there were a series of angelic visitations, audible voices, prophetic activity, like nothing I, I've ever heard. It, it, seriously, it's the, it's, it sounds like the Bible happening today of what happened in Kansas City in 1983 and 1984. It was basically two years, and promises were given, and powerful, powerful things prophetically happened concerning a revival in America, concerning a worldwide or a prayer movement that God was going to raise up in the heartland. In one of those experiences, Bob Jones, prophet of God, um, tells Mike Bickle that uh, he is going to raise up this 24-7 house of prayer to be a spiritual intercessor for Israel. And the reason why is because Harry S. Truman was a political intercessor in 1948 from Kansas City, Missouri. And he said, in fact, he's going to give you Harry S. Truman's property. And this is long before it happened. He told them what the building was going to look like. And they got this building by a miracle. Today, somebody gave them all of the acreage that Harry S. Truman used to own. Because you're going to be a spiritual intercessor like Harry S. Truman was a political intercessor for Israel. So here's what happened in 1948. Everybody, it was a real question of whether Israel should become a nation or not. Because it almost assuredly meant an immediate war. Keep in mind, we just got done with World War II. All of the Arabs were against it. Many nations were against it. And the, the biography it tells the story of all of the Jews that came to Harry S. Truman, and he was just tired of hearing it, and, but he had some that were, were very close to his heart, and his heart got won over. And when the United Nations met he would go from person to per person to say, Israel needs to become a nation. This is the hour. We need to give them statehood. He interceded on behalf of Israel. The United States gave the deciding vote for Israel to become a nation. We were the first nation to recognize Israel as a nation after 2,000 years. The chief rabbi at that time, Isaac Herzog said this to Harry S. Truman. God put you in your mother's womb so you would be the instrument to bring the rebirth of Israel after 2,000 years. 
powerful. So God tells Bob Jones through an angelic visitation that he's going to give Mike Bickle and this group, there's 50 people at the time, and he's going to raise up a 24-7 house of prayer to intercede for revival in America, but for Israel. Just like Harry S. Truman interceded politically, they would intercede spiritually. Well, do you want to know what happened? In 1999... I mean, they had been praying for years. They had been praying three times a day for years. But in 1999, it started 24-7, a prayer meeting, International House of Prayer in Kansas City. Do you know today they have 2,000 full-time intercessors? These are young people that have raised their own support, and they take shifts in the prayer room. This prayer meeting hasn't stopped since 1997. It has gone 16 years straight. They, they have shifts on Christmas, on Easter. Folks, this has been going. It is an, it's, a, it's a furnace for the nation. This is another thing that's happened in our time. I don't think we even think about it that much. There's a miracle happening in Kansas. Do you know you can go online at any time and watch the prayer room? They're praying right now. You can go at three in the morning. The parking lot's full. You go in and there's all these young people are worshiping God and seeking God. And, and there, is a, there is a prayer meeting going for our nation, folks. There's a prayer meeting going for Israel. God raised it up. He said, I want to honor Harry S. Truman who was a political intercessor so that Israel could become a nation again. I'm raising up a prayer meeting on his property. Now, how many know that God can do whatever he wants to do? But I'll tell you, it's stunning when you see it happen. The problem is we we don't oftentimes know the story, so we don't even even realize what's happening right in our day. This is just, it's just amazing. If anything should give you hope for America and for revival, it should be that prayer meeting. Now, does that mean we agree with everything that comes out of Kansas, everything, everybody's? No, it's okay. But something's happening, folks, and God has raised it up. Spiritual life. Ezekiel 37.10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life. And stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. (laughs) So God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? The bones come together. The whole thing is there, but there's no breath in them. Can this live? And Ezekiel, very wisely, he says, you know, Lord. And he says, Ezekiel, prophesy. Prophesy to the dry bones. Command them to live. So he starts speaking. Life. Life. And the breath of God comes in. And I believe this is a role that the church needs to play. Is to speak life, not death. Over Israel, over your wayward children, over other churches, over everything you don't like in America, and you're, you're, start speaking life. It takes no gift to discern death. 
and to be able to point out how dead it is and why it's dead and whose fault it is that it's dead. You know what? Jesus died for all that death. Well, Pastor Tom, it's, it's too late. Sin is too great. There's too much sin. Do you want to know what Romans 5 says? It says where sin abounds, grace will abound all the more. The word is superabound. God's going to do something by his grace. So let me give you the one scripture in the New... I'm, I'm going a little long. I will... I do have an hour, though, and I didn't start until 10 after, so here we go. Or 22, so I, I, still, have, I still have a little longer. Okay. Um, in the last seven, Israel makes a covenant with a political leader. We call him the Antichrist today. Thinking this is the, this is the, it's, it's the very political Christ they wanted way back then. We want somebody to rule. We want somebody to make us safe. We want somebody to give us our rights and our land. And so they will make a covenant with this prince for one seven, and he will allow them to rebuild their temple and re and start the sacrifices again. But halfway through that seven, three and a half years in, um, he discloses his real identity and sets up an image in the temple, the rebuilt temple, and it's an abomination of desolation, and the Jews wholesale reject him at that time. But the problem is, is he's kind of the world ruler, and he's, he's wages war, he's called the beast, and he's got armies, and he's got power, and so he decides to go after Israel. And then the Bible has this to say, and this is the one possible reference to America. Revelation 12, 14, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, that's Israel, so that she should, could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. This is a description of an airlift (laughs) by this eagle. Is that America? Does America come to Israel's rescue at that time and provide an airlift out? I, I don't know. But I know this. America has been Israel's friend. We need to be very clear on what it means to be a friend to Israel. Think about what it means for you to be a friend to somebody. It doesn't mean you agree with everything they do. In fact, the Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. You actually tell people when you think they're off. The idea that America has to go along with everything Israel says and does because otherwise we're not blessing Israel. That's not right. No, we're a friend to Israel. We stand by Israel, whether Israel's being good or not. A friend loves at all times. America has stood by Israel. I think it's one possibility. You guys think of this as you want to. I think it might be one reason why God raised up America. It's to be the friend of Israel. It's to stand by Israel. Israel needed a friend, not just spiritual friends which I hope we're all going to be spiritual friends now to Israel, but it needed a political friend that had a big hammer (laughs) because Israel's in trouble. And I, I just wonder if God, maybe that's why America has prospered the way that it has and why I believe 
we need to continue to stand by Israel as a nation. After the Antichrist comes, uh, the, the first the serpent goes after Israel. When, it, when, he, when Israel is hidden from his sight, he goes after the church, those who have the testimony of Jesus. Sometime shortly after that, we have the sixth seal, which you've got to hear my end time stuff if you want all of this stuff. But um, I believe the church is raptured at that time. And during the sixth seal, 144,000 Jews are sealed by God and they are protected from the wrath of God. They live through the wrath of God. The church, I believe, is saved out of the trumpets and the bowls, which are the actual direct wrath of God. Um, But Israel goes through it, but they're sealed and they're protected from those judgments. The return of Christ, um, very possibly on the day of atonement, If you will notice in Leviticus 23, God gave these appointed feasts. They're actually called the appointed times of the Lord. The first is Passover. Jesus died on Passover. The second is part of Passover. It's unleavened bread. Jesus was the unleavened bread. He was without sin. The third feast is is first fruits. Jesus died or rose again from the dead on the first fruits. He is our first fruits. Pentecost, the fourth feast, 50 days later, is the early harvest, where they celebrated the early harvest. Of course, Pentecost has been fulfilled. That's when the Holy Spirit was poured out. That's when the first 3,000 came in. There are three feasts left. One is the Feast of Trumpets. It's very possible that the signing of this treaty with the Antichrist will be on the Feast of Trumpets. It is The Feast of Trumpets was a regathering of the Jewish people for uh, a time of examination. Following that is the day of atonement. I think it's very possible that Jesus will return to this earth on the day of atonement. Let me tell you why. Zechariah 12, 10 through 13. 10 through 13, 1. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, in the plain of Megiddo. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. All Israel will be saved. They will come into the the atonement happened on the cross, but they will recognize it in mass when Jesus comes back. That doesn't mean many Jews aren't being saved now and that more won't be saved before that. The 144,000, I think, are going to come to Christ long before that. But on the day of atonement, when they see the one that they have pierced in the sky returning, they will mourn and God's grace is going to be poured out. The coming millennial kingdom. Jesus encouraged his disciples about the reality of the coming kingdom. Acts 1, 6 and 7. Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus never denied there was a coming kingdom to Israel. There is a coming kingdom. 
that's coming that he will lead. Peter in Acts 3, 20 and 21, he says to the Jewish people, repent and, and times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. And then he says this, that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. And when I say, and when Peter says God spoke by his holy prophets about this coming restoration of all things, it's everywhere in the Old Testament. Every major prophet talks about the coming kingdom that is coming to Israel. Isaiah 2 talks about the, 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 the beauty of the Lord is going to be revealed and the law is going to come forth from the mountain of the Lord and the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of God. The lion is going to lay with the lamb. The curse is coming off creation. Streams are going to break forth in the desert. Every, almost every minor prophet also talks about the glorious time in the end for Israel. This is the millennial kingdom of Christ. It says that the government will be upon his shoulders. And then 9-7, he will sit on the throne of David. That is an earthly throne. Jesus says, when I come in my, and I sit on my throne with heavenly glory, he's talking about David's throne. It is a throne on earth. Listen to what he says to the apostles. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The apostles will all be on a throne and their, their jurisdiction is going to be Israel. The Bible says that we're going to be on thrones. Jesus promises that we're also going to, to the one who overcomes, he's going to sit on a throne as well and give an authority to judge the nations. It says that we're going to, when we're raised to life in Revelation 24, um, we're given thrones. And we're going to be part of the rule of Israel over the whole earth. We're going to have new bodies. We will be able to transport quickly. They will be physical bodies, but they will also be able to, boom, transport. We'll probably, our residence will probably be the New Jerusalem even then. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how it all works, but that's in the end time stuff. Okay. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the last feast, will be fulfilled. Listen to Zechariah 14, 16, and 17. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. During the millennial kingdom, there's only one feast that's celebrated. Feast of Tabernacles, celebrating God tabernacling with man. God will dwell on this earth. Amazing. And then finally, the eternal city which is the bride of the Lamb. Listen to Revelation 21. The eternal city, it's the bride coming down out of heaven. Remember, the bride is both Jew and Gentile. Listen to what it says about, about, the, about the gates. It says that the gates, each gate, which is a single pearl, 
has the name of one of the tribes of Israel on them. And the foundation stones have the names of the apostles. The church, Israel, the whole thing coming together, one bride before God for all eternity. Hallelujah. Ben, do you want me to use this one or do you got a different one you want me to use? This will work? Okay. Should I push the red button? All right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We will be done at eight. It's about 20 to eight now. I'm going to take questions and comments for these 20 minutes. At eight, we will just, I'll have a prayer and we will dismiss, but I will stay up here and answer any more questions or talk or hear any more comments. So uh, if you have a question or a comment, you want to just raise up your hand, I will find you and we can do that. Okay, right here. Paul. Um, Just a comment. What I just sensed the Lord just shouting is, well done to you. And I would love to see this. You know, there's so many churches that don't know the first thing about what, what you were teaching. Love to see more exposure. So well done. Thank Bless you, bro. Thank you. We are very blessed to be in a church like this. Yes. I'm sure there's a lot of people that are going to sit back and say, when you have a good pastor and a large active church, why is he spending time talking about Israel to this degree and honoring Israel? I want to tell you a story. Ten years ago, I was sitting in a larger congregation than this. It wasn't a Sunday night. It was a Sunday morning. There were 5,000 people in attendance. It was the church of the gentleman that wrote the book that he referred to earlier, the t- uh, about the blood moons and he had God impressed upon his heart that he should be honoring Israel and he started establishing as a focal point of his ministry a night to establish is to honor Israel and after he did that for a couple times God put on his heart to start a new organization called Christians United for Israel and on that Sunday morning he sat back and said I'm not looking for a firm commitment I'm looking for a show of hands we've got a brochure about what we're doing here we're trying something brand new who might be willing to go to our first major event and that is go to Washington DC to talk to our legal representatives about Israel and I looked over at my wife and her hand shot up and she said I did not want that and I looked over and said I don't want to go to Washington either I grabbed her arm and I tried to pull it down and it would not come down and we found both our hands up in the air so we got a brochure for that night and we took that brochure and we said the last place on earth we want to be is in Washington DC and We put it on top of our refrigerator. A week before that event, that brochure fluttered to the ground in front of us, landed on the floor, and we thought, too bad, it's too late. We called up and said, can we still get involved in this thing if we have to? And they said, sure, but you can't find housing there because they were anticipating 800 people. They had a couple thousand people sign up already. We called, started calling around, and ends up that there was a room right across from the convention center God wanted us there. We asked, why God? Why did you want us here? God impressed upon this minister's heart that he wanted somebody from every state in Washington, D.C., 
talking to their senators and House of Representatives about support for Israel. I, at the time, had residency in Wyoming. There aren't many people in Wyoming, and not very many people were in Texas to hear about this opportunity. God had me in front of the senators and the House of Representatives of the good state of Wyoming because God felt it was important to be honoring Israel and supporting Israel. And not wow. only is that pastor doing it and our pastor doing it, but many of the big name pastors across this country are hearing from God. It's important to be supporting and honoring Israel. Hallelujah. Thank you, Pastor. old story, but I think it's a good one. You mentioned how various church bodies in the Europe uh, put down to it. I've got one the other way. Um, Hudson Taylor was a British minister, a uh, missionary to China during the 19th century. Every New Year's Day, he collected an offering. Specific, that offering specifically went to Jewish outreach ministries. Raleigh, I am so glad you said that because to be absolutely fair, throughout the ages, there have been churches and pastors that have stood with Israel. Um, Charles Spurgeon was a huge supporter of Israel and of heart for Israel. So that, thank you. Thank you. Don't, don't be mad at the church. The church, sometimes we get confused and we get on the wrong side of things, but... Amen. A positive, it's, it's important to hear the positive stories, too. Uh, there was a man who uh, came to our church probably about 11 years ago, and his name was Akri Lichten. And he was a soldier in the Israel army. And he, um, the Syrian army was coming, and they had to take back the land. And um, there was a minefield that laid before them, and the minefields were buried under sand. And so Avki looked at, looked at his soldiers and everything, and he says, um, let's pray. Let's pray for God to do something. And while they were praying, a wind came, and it, every landmine was shown. And they went across and defeated that <laughs> army. <laughs> wow. I was just talking with Jim and Florence this week about the Six-Day War, and Syrian generals that tur had turned around when all they needed to do was go in and take it. Why didn't you? And they had saw um, angelic beings in white <laughs> that, that turned them around. <laughs> Elaine. Um, I wonder if you would say something about Ephraim, the northern kingdom and Ephraim were... I forget which prophet it was right now, but the prophecy that God was going to join the two sticks, Judah and Ephraim, together and make one stick in the role of Ephraim in the end times and in the millennial kingdom. How many know that's not an easy question? Um, God, God um, Ephraim, what, what role does Ephraim have? Um, Ephraim and Judah are going to be Combined, and what role does Ephraim have? Ephraim is a reference to Israel. Jo the blessing passed to Joseph, 
But it didn't stay with Joseph. It gave, he gave it to Manasseh and Ephraim, and Ephraim was the first one. And so oftentimes the Old Testament references Israel, calls all of Israel Ephraim. And there was the northern uh, 